millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Hidden Histories. Today I spoke to David Petz. So David and I talk all about the archaeology of the holy island of Lindisfarne in Northumbria, which some of you might be familiar with or have even maybe visited. I haven't visited Lindisfarne, but I have always wanted to, as I'm personally fascinated by its spiritual past and the atmosphere that still pervades the island today. David talks about the importance of the sea and the tide to the island and also the famous figures who live there like St Cuthbert and Bede, but also importantly how archaeology can inform us in a different way about the past in contrast to the way historians look at sources. This was a great podcast and I really enjoyed recording it so I hope that you also enjoy it. David Petz, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast to talk about all of your research and your very practical um, skills as an archaeologist as well. And we're going to talk about the holy island of Lindisfarne, which, as I was just saying a minute ago to you, is just one of my ultimate destinations in England. I can't believe I've not been. So can you tell me where is Lindisfarne and why is it considered such an important place even today? Absolutely. Well, Lindisfarne, it's a small tidal island and it's off the northeast coast of Northumberland. And it's about 10, 15 miles south of the Scottish border, though in the Anglo-Saxon period, that meant absolutely nothing. There was no no Anglo-Scottish border. It owes its importance because it was one of the most substantial, one of the most wealthy, one of the most influential early medieval monastic sites in, in Britain. And it sits on a kind of the kind of the edge of the, the the world of the early medieval English, and it has links with them, but also it has connections with the Picts, it has connections with the Scots, it has connections with Ireland. So it's on a kind of cultural boundary, and it, it channeled all those influences through most of the early medieval period. Why do you think that it was chosen as such an important monastic site in its implementation? Yeah, well, I think one of the most important things about Lindisfarne is its is its islandness. The fact that it's it's a tidal island. Uh, it was founded by uh, King Oswald, who'd been in exile in Scotland. He had probably converted to Christianity either at the island monastery of Iona or by or was converted by monks from Iona. So when he comes back to take over the reins of power in Northumbria, it's natural that. I think that he would look for a similar kind of site. Iona was a massively influential monastery on the kind of in, on the Atlantic coast, and I think he was looking to replicate that 
for his new kingdom in Northumbria. Yeah, so it's sort of, because I was going to ask, is it modelled on another holy site? So Iona being the earlier, an earlier site in Scotland, I think, is it, Iona's the west, is it the west coast of Scotland? Yes, it's west coast of Scotland, yeah, so it's just off Mull. Yeah, I mean, the thing with, with monasteries is is they are, they are they're modelled on lots of things. So they, they something like uh, Lindisfarne would have been kind of modelled on Iona in the sense that it was copying Iona, but you, it's a kind of recursive process. So Iona itself in its own way, is actually modelled on things like Jerusalem, the way they've tried to lay it out. They're modelling it on their understanding of what the original holy places uh, were. So we have this kind of chain of associations with Lindisfarne referring to Iona, which refers to to Jerusalem. Uh, it's, it's it's kind of networks and 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 kind of threads of associations. Really interesting. Iona is such a special place i have i have been there and it's beautiful um and you do get a sense of it feeling incredibly spiritual and very special very protected do you think that this idea of seclusion and protection is the reason why islands were particularly popular to establish monasteries i think there's a tension with island locations certainly in the bible there are there is the idea that uh, the ocean is was particularly the, 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 the Atlantic Ocean rather than the Mediterranean, was on the edge of the world. It was, it was on the kind of, for the early Christians, on the literal and metaphorical edge of things. So we have this idea that islands are, are remote places where you're exposed to something beyond civilization. But I think we, we need to be careful because we can overdo that. Because equally, whether you are an early medieval monk in, in the Atlantic world or in the North Sea world, Sea lanes and the coasts; these are these are major communication routes. So, in some ways, yes, they're kind of keying into the idea of isolation. But at the same time, they're, they're quite important landmarks. They're places where boats would have gone past all the time. Lindisfarne is three or four miles uh, as the crow flies or the seagull flies from Bamburgh, which is a really important Anglo-Saxon royal palace. So, it's this kind of ostentatious isolation. They're, they're being isolated, but they're doing it in really obvious places where people can see it. So it's this kind of strange kind of a halfway house of being a bit isolated, but quite self-conscious about it. Yeah. And I mean, do you think that that made these monastic sites quite vulnerable? Or do you think that it was there, there was more benefit rather than their vulnerability? Because I know that there were Viking, I certainly know there were Viking attacks in Iona fairly regularly. And uh, there were later in Lindisfarne, but I mean, was that was that a case of few and far between, and actually the benefits far outweighed the negatives? Well, it's about Lindisfarne's founded in six three five, and it's about a good hundred and fifty years before the Vikings start start getting there. The advantage of being on the on on the coastal location like that is that you are you have good communication routes. You can get. Yeah, you can travel by boat much more quickly than you can on foot. So if you're a monk in Iona, a uh, monk in Lindisfarne, if you want to get up to, to, to the north of Northumbria or into Scotland, you take a boat. If you want to go down south uh, to, to East Anglia or the continent, you take a boat. So you've got those fantastic communication routes. Also, the, the 7th century is a period when we're getting increasing international exchange, particularly in, in the North Sea. So they're, they're kind of plugging in to those kind of uh, routes of, of, of trade, economy, and also movement of ideas as well. So I think being, being on those coastal locations is, is pretty important. Okay. So a lot of your 
research has gone into the the tides and the impacts of the tides on on particularly on Lindisfarne. Why did the tides have an important part to play? I mean, was this factored into the development of the monastery? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the first thing to, to I think, as I've mentioned, Lindisfarne is a tidal island. So when the tide comes in, you can't get off it, and when the tide goes out, you can walk across the sand. So immediately for any any Christian monks, that idea of a sea parting and, and, and coming together again, immediately that that that's linked to the idea of the parting of the Red Sea. It's this lovely kind of rhyming landscape. It rhymes with the Bible. It gives people that sense of 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 the divine in action. And and when you look at the early written sources, the saints' lives written at the time, they're very conscious of the sea as a, a channel through which God's power could be made manifest. So you, obviously, if you go go to the Gospels themselves, you have the idea of Jesus on on the Sea of Galilee and and the, the uh, him calming storms. But once you get into the Anglo-Saxon world, we see the sea is something which brings resources. Cuthbert has wood brought to him on the Farne Islands to help build his hermitage. Food washes up on on the beaches, so Cuthbert's able to find dolphin meat when he's up in Scotland. They it's it's left there on the strand. And tidal zones, these lovely multifaceted sites. They're, they're, they're not quite sea, they're not quite land. So they get freighted with all sorts of interesting kind of symbolic connotations quite quickly. They're also um, they're connected to lunar, the, the lunar activity. And so do you think there was an element of kind of hmm. this cosmic, quasi-cosmic Christianity sort of amalgamation? Do you think that has something to do with this as well? Well, in... This is a period when when the monks, early Christianity is very exercised with knowing when things happen. Because obviously Christianity, you've got a series of, of seasonal seasonal um, feast days, so things like Easter. And obviously one of, one of the great debates between different elements of the early Christian church was precisely when, when you uh, celebrate Easter. And a lot of it is about they're very interested in monitoring the, the solar processes, lunar processes. They're really interested in actually trying to engage with a lot of these natural processes. So somebody like Bede, who's who's based at a monastery, you know, about kind of 30, 40 miles south, he is clearly writing about how to calculate time, how to calculate tides. It's part of their it's part of their life world. And again, just physically getting on and off the island. You need to know when the tides are, otherwise you, otherwise you're stuck. So there's a lot of interest in knowing how the tides work. As you get further south into East Anglia, again, tidal landscapes, tides go a long way inland, get over onto the North Sea, the Netherlands before all the land reclamation. The North Sea is fringed by lands which are remade by tides every day. So they're, they get incredibly exercised about knowing precisely when they are. So there was a very much a, uh, a human understanding and interaction with tidal activity and the way that the the, the the sea and the water moved around the landscape during this period in a way that is probably, we probably don't really give credit to now, would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean they're, they're really interested in actually working out how it works. And, and what's interesting is when you see Bede writing about it, he's very aware that the tide comes in at different places along the coast at, at different times. So he's clearly got a network of informants. He, he's, he's doing this by observation as well as, it's not, it's not an abstract exercise in, in mental arithmetic. He's actually looking at 
at the nature itself, noticing when it comes in at different times. It's 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 kind of early science, really. Um, and they're doing this, this very kind of objective analysis of the tides. At precisely the same time, they're also writing about the tides as these miraculous agents of God. So they're, 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 it's a complex, they've got a complex understanding of what's going on. I love Bede. I was going to ask you about him. Um, there's so Obviously, there's so much that we know and we take from this, this period because of Bede. I mean, what, what can we learn from him about Lindisfarne and, and its relationship with the sea? Is he quite... Is he quite lyrical in his descriptions, or is he, or is he quite observational? Bede's great piece of work is obviously the ecclesiastical history, and he when he when he starts that in, in the preface, he talks about how Britain is provided with all these maritime resources. He talks about all the all the fish and and, and the other creatures that abound in the sea. So he's very interested in very aware of, of the wealth of the sea. And when he talks about Lindisfarne, he obviously he's talking about lots of other stuff as well, so, but, he, but he describes it, he talks about the tidal, the tidal presences, and then he goes on to write two biographies of two lifes of St Cuthbert, uh, who is one of the key figures. And there, that's where he indulges himself much more, talking about particularly the, these miracles associated with, with Cuthbert. He doesn't give us much physical description of the monastery. Yeah, he, he mentions one or two things in passing. So we know there's a, a cemetery for the monks. We know there's a, a watchtower uh, which looks out to sea. Um, we know there's some churches. But he doesn't describe it much. He's more interested in that sense of, of what people are doing. He's, he's not a great describer of, of places. St Cuthbert is very famous. I mean, I probably argue most people have heard of St Cuthbert. What can the archaeology of the island tell us about Cuthbert and his experiences and his importance on the island as well? Well, Cuthbert's a really important figure because normally with an early medieval monastery, the key saint would be the saint who founded it. And in the case of Lindisfarne, that's St Aidan. But with Lindisfarne, is the Church in Northumbria went through this great process of internal debate about 30 years after the monastery was founded. Uh, and rather than staying with the Irish Ionian tradition, they, they, the Northumbrian Church kind of pivoted and aligned itself more with the, the kind of Roman and Frankish tradition of Christianity. Aidan was associated with the wrong kind of Christianity. When Cuthbert becomes abbot, he is really the clean skin. So he becomes the first, the key culted figure on the island. And it's not so much what Cuthbert does when he's alive, but the best thing he does for Lindisfarne is he dies because of that, he, that death gives them the saint they need, the new saint. So we see the, the creation of the cult of Cuthbert. And that's done in various ways. It's done, there's the kind of, there's not much paperwork to becoming an Anglo-Saxon uh, saint. So it's done by kind of, it's the usual thing. They, they dig him up after 10 years and he's miraculously preserved, probably because he's been embalmed heavily. But they, they decide he's a saint by acclamation. So they, they raise the body up out of the grave. They lift it above the ground, put it in a shrine. And that's really what marks the beginning of the cult of Cuthbert. And we see a series of things associated with that. We see replanning. The, the monastery is kind of reorganised, so we see churches laid out in a way that looks more Frankish, more, more Southern Anglo-Saxon. We see the creation of things like the Lindisfarne Gospel, which seems to be part of that cult-making of Cuthbert. But also Cuthbert 
really brings in the pilgrims. He, he's, he's a kind of cash cow for the monastery. So they're coming in, they're bringing in um, kind of gold and donations, but also land is given to the monastery as well. So this really leads Lindisfarne becoming a massive landholder and, and a massive political entity as much as a religious entity. So Cuthbert's absolutely a key figure in this period. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Why do you think um, sort of hermit, hermitage and, and uh, being a hermit, as because Cuthbert was a, was a hermit for a time on the island, why do you think that that was important to Lindisfarne and indeed, you know, other other monastic sites. I mean, do you, can can you look to the archaeology to give um, any understanding of of that way of life? I think one of the key things with these these hermits is they 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 have this dual role of people who are seeking isolation, but also when you actually look at the the sources and with hermits more generally in early Christianity they're also often seen as as key figures in dealing with debates and arguments and disputes this because I think because they have withdrawn from the world world they are seen as people who can be uh, legislators and uh, make difficult decisions so we know that Cuthbert he goes off to the Farn Islands which is another set of rocks even further out from Lindisfarne but he gets annoyed by the number of people coming to visit him so he actually he actually alters his cell so he can't be he can't be seen so we've, we've got this idea again this this, this 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 tension in in the island location so they're trying to go off to the islands they're trying to seek isolation but at the same time people still keep on visiting them people still keep 
coming to look at them. And it's a reminder that, you know, people are scooting around these seas. These seas aren't that... Uh, they're not barriers. Seas are, 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 are route ways to communication. And almost every island along the North Sea coast has got a hermit or a monastery associated with it, kind of all the way, all the way down, down well into you know, virtually the English Channel. You know, so we have this kind of landscape planted with um, with hermits all the way down. Yeah, it was like a real. There was a real trend for it, wasn't there, for for quite a while. So, as an archaeologist, obviously your identification of historical evidence is is somewhat different to a to a historian what is it what's the sort of de- what is the practice of an archaeologist and how would you look to how would you work on a site like Lindisfarne to be able to answer questions about the monk's life on this island well I think for archaeology for me one of the big things is is what we're looking at we're looking at what what was actually done if we look at the historical sources, we, we, we can see what people said was done. We can see how people describe things and people sometimes creative with what they describe. Sometimes they, they omit things. What I'm interested in is my bigger work on, on early religion is I'm interested in that tension between the ideal and what actually happened, what actually how religions are practiced. So that's the kind of thing we're interested in when we're looking at early monastic sites. We can look at things, we can look at evidence for how people were buried, we can look at evidence for how the monasteries were laid out, because, you know, as I said, these are ideologically freighted places, they are laying themselves out to allude to other monasteries, to allude to holy places, and one of the things that the archaeological work on, on Lindisfarne has done with our work and, and other work, we're starting to see the emergence of a kind of symbolic landscape, people were moving around this landscape, there are multiple churches, there would have been processions, there would have been kind of liturgy moving around uh, these sites. We can pick up the the, the the sculpture associated with the graves. So we're seeing actually, you know, they can talk about burying people, but we don't really know what that actually looks like. But we can see that with archaeology. We can see attitudes to, for example, one of the things we find with our graves is quite a lot of our graves have been associated with these piles of uh, quartz pebbles, these lovely translucent white pebbles. And that is something which is not mentioned in any of the documentary sources, but we, we pick it up as a very distinct tradition in kind of northern British and Irish Christianity. So we've got a, a, a distinctive burial rite, which is only seen through the archaeology. But also it's something, the use of these quartz pebbles, that goes back into antiquity and into the pre-Christian periods. So arguably we're potentially picking up a, an element of the funerary rites, which has pagan in the broader sense, has pre-Christian origins but is reworked and, and retooled as it were as, as a technology associated with with christian burials so we're seeing how christianity although it's an important religion and bringing stuff in is also grasping at local traditions and pre-existing practices basically i, I mean it's this idea that we have a, a a religion christianity which is brought in it's an external religion it's coming from from the east mediterranean the near east but it's being reworked in in locally in northern britain drawing on traditions and and resources and and imagery that that are connected to a pre-christian past so we'd never pick that up through through the documentary sources um so this is what i mean about the idea of of looking at uh, religion as practice is actually what people actually did on and in the ground that's what i find amazing about archaeology because i think it really is when you're looking at history it's probably one of the only sources that you can go okay well this is this is really objective 
fact rather than a biased interpretation of the way the way things were so you can as you say you can see see how things were literally laid out how burials were literally practiced which is quite remarkable i find with with archaeology i mean how much do you think that that can conflicts or is informed by the surviving sources for example we were talking about bead earlier yeah, there's always working in in an historical period for archaeology. It's always we're always this tension. We're 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 playing off the archaeology against the texts, but equally, you know, historians they they play off different types of texts against each other, looking for those those dissonances, and we play off different type different elements of archaeology. So we're all different evidential sources, and we're always constantly kind of triangulating, looking for similarities, looking for differences, and it's not the case of that. Uh, the history trumps the archaeology or vice versa. But what's interesting is actually those those discourses where they don't quite mesh. And I think it's where you've got those contradictions. That's where a kind of holistic approach to the past, drawing on the documents and the archaeology, that's where it works the best. It's boring if everything agrees. It's much more interesting where you've got that that tension. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a jigsaw puzzle and just those there's occasionally the bits that just aren't fitting or just don't don't connect. So if, if somebody were, because obviously we're recording this in um, in a lockdown, if somebody were to visit Lindisfarne, as I think following um, coming out of lockdowns, I think people are going to be looking to go and visit more sites and more places within the United Kingdom, within within um, their vicinity. What would people expect to see? What is it the experience of going to Lindisfarne like today? How do you think it might be similar to the experience of the monks on the island in the in the in the is it the tenth yeah. century? Well, seventh to tenth century, yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's it's it, it's 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 strange because Lindisfarne now, Holy Island now, is very touristy. There's a huge number of tourists coming in, um, so. On a busy bank holiday afternoon, any sense of isolation, certainly in the village, is is gone. Though if you get out onto the north side of the island, you can still have that sense of being a bit more, bit more isolated. But those are still people coming in on a pilgrimage in their own kind of way. So we have people who come to the island for the birds, for the wildlife. It's at the end of a long-distance footpath. So again, there's that sense of completion. And that's the interesting thing about pilgrimage sites, is there's much about the journey as the end point. So when you come to the island, obviously, it's a very different experience. And, and one of the problems with early medieval sites is there's nothing standing, which is still connected to, to, um, to, to the early monastery. There's a the later monastic ruins, but it, it, they're, they're kind of, that's Norman and later. That being said, if you're on the island, if you can get, if you can get there when the tide's in, uh, in the evening, when there's far less people there... And it still doesn't take a huge mental leap to get a sense of what that must have been like. You can look across. It's a really interesting landscape, not just the island itself, but the views. As I said, you can see across to the great site at Bamborough, big medieval castle, but a big Anglo-Saxon centre. So you can see across the sea to there very easily. You see across the Farne Islands where Cuthbert spent time as a pilgrim. As you look onto the mainland, most of the land you can see would have been land owned by the monk. The monks, they, they had huge amounts of land. You can see just about peeking over the hills in the distance, the top of Yevering Bell. You can mark very closely uh, another big Anglo-Saxon palace site which stood at its foot. So you can kind of mentally reconstruct the, the geography. 
Um, so you get that kind of sense of mapping, mapping what the monastery is like. But also in the evenings, it's quiet. You've got the birds. You've got the you've got the seals. Always you can hear the seals all the time, and the kind of the sense of a soundscape, and even even the smells of, of the seaweed and things as the tide comes in and out. You can really get a sense of what it must have been like to be on the monastery. I'm sure there would have been other noises and other smells with the monastery, but we, which we can't capture. But it's uh, it's 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 a, it's a special place still, absolutely. Yeah. So. It's yes, it's st- it's still an incredible experience to be able to to be on this island. You can get a sense of the atmosphere that um, that these these monks would have felt, and also I suppose you get a sense of this landscape archaeology because you're looking out and you're seeing all of the different points of interest that would have existed, you know, during the time of of, of Cuthbert. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was fascinating and. You've informed me, and Absolutely. now I feel like I can go to to Lindisfarne, <laughs> feeling like I know a lot more about cool. it. Cool, no, absolute pleasure. Is there anywhere that else that you would recommend people look to to find a little bit more out about this period and and the idea of um, island dwelling monasteries and monks? Oh, let's think. I mean, I'd point people to to, to our, our our Lindisfarne website for the project. I think the best thing is just to go and visit some of these coastal sites. I mean, places like Tynemouth. Bradwell, Bradwell on Sea down in Essex is an amazing site. Again, early standing church, much more remote, much quieter than Lindisfarne. Yeah, and I would say, you know, we're going to be all looking for things to do um, in the summer that are outdoors, but also, you know, within within the UK. So I think that it's really, I, I really hope that some of these these places, these sites are going to get um, some more attention because there are, there are actually quite a few surviving Anglo-Saxon settlements and uh religious sites aren't there so i think that yeah. it would be wonderful to be able to reinvigorate them a little bit for, for the public <laughs> consciousness absolutely fingers crossed <laughs> super thank you david and love to have you back on the podcast another time Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 